I was planning to start a series on the book of James today, but I was so impressed by this verse that I postponed the book of James beginning next Sunday. Well, what verse might that have been? Verse that I believe God is going to speak to us today from his holy word. It's found in 1 Peter, first letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. 1 Peter 1, 22. Writing to Christians, he says, Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unpretended love of the brothers, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Quite a statement. He's talking to Christians. He tells us to love one another with a pure heart, an undivided heart. Not just love one another, but love one another fervently. That's impressive, isn't it? He tells us as Christians, we are to have that kind of love to each other. It's so important that Jesus gave us a new command dealing with that issue. It was at the Last Supper. Later on, we're going to remember his death in the communion. We find in John chapter 13 a new command that he gave at the Last Supper. Verses 34 and 35. So here's Jesus with his 12 apostles. Something very important to say just a few hours before his death on the cross for the sins of the world. It's a new command, something that hadn't been given before. And at this historic time, this Last Supper, now is the time for Jesus to give it to us. What is this new command? 1334 of John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another like I have loved you. That you love one another. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Now you might ask, why is that a new command? Back in the Old Testament and reiterated in the New Testament, we're told to love God wholeheartedly and our neighbors as ourselves. Isn't that pretty much the same? And Jesus, when he gave the Good Samaritan story, it later was explained that really our neighbors should be everybody, not just those of our family and of our ethnicity, but we should love everyone. So how then is this a new command? Well, it's new because he said, love one another like I loved you. They saw in concrete form what true love was like, and Jesus demonstrated that. Now they had 
a very physical demonstration in this world of what real love is. How did he love them? Well, he chose them to be with him, as it says in Mark chapter 3. For about three years, they were following Jesus, hearing his teaching. Out of love, he was sharing God's truths with them for all this time. And they saw him living out those truths in everyday life. And so it was new. Now they had a concrete example of how they were to love each other. Not just everybody, but an especial love to God's people, those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, like them, had given their lives to him and trusted in him. That's how we are to love each other. And, of course, in addition to all that, he ultimately gave his life for us and for the world. He died on the cross, the just for the unjust, the Son of God for us who have sinned, who have broken his holy law, and full and complete forgiveness out of his love and sacrifice is offered to us. What a wonderful thought this is. And it's so important, just a few hours before he died, he gave this new command. But we find Peter even carrying it a little step further, where he not only said to love one another, but he said to love one another fervently, <laughs> enthusiastically, passionately, God's people should love one another. Sometimes this has not been the case. And so instead of a positive witness, a very negative witness has been demonstrated. How wonderful it is, though, when we follow his command and truly love each other. We care when a brother or sister has a problem or is sick or whatever it might be. If we love fervently, it's our interest in our love and our prayers that reach out to a brother or sister, not only when they're having difficult times, but also in everyday life. Love one another fervently, we are commanded in the scripture, like Jesus demonstrated God's love to us. Ultimately, he gave the final sacrifice. Greater love no man has than this, he said, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 13. That's how we too are to love one another. We're to lay down our lives, as it were, for one another in love. And there was a promise attached. He said, by this, Verse 35, John 13, by this, by this kind of love of one another, all men, he said, shall know that you are my disciples. Disciple basically is a pupil, a learner, a student, 
if you really demonstrate this kind of love, everyone's going to see that you're my disciples. It'll be a witness. Maybe they'll want to become Christian too then if they really see this kind of love demonstrated and embodying in our lives. There are other places in the scripture that talk about this kind of love. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians. It's emphasized there in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, the last part of verse 12. He's praying that God makes us increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. So this kind of love was embodied in the Apostle Paul who wrote this. And he saw it in them. They were practicing obedience to this new command. He wanted them to abound in love and to increase in that kind of love to each other as well as toward everybody. But in chapter 4, he deals with it again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. But as concerning brotherly love, you don't need that I write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do it toward all the brothers who are in all Macedonia. But we ask you, brothers, that you increase more and more. <laughs> He's saying, don't be satisfied with the love that you do experience and possess and have toward fellow Christians, but I want you to grow in that, to learn to have even more love. Wouldn't you say this is pretty important that Jesus gave us the new command and now we, here we have the Apostle Paul emphasizing it so very, very strongly. But not only does Peter talk about it, not only does Jesus talk about it, not only does Paul talk about it, guess what? Apostle John talks about it. Go with me, if you would, to 1 John, his first letter, and we find in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. We know we're Christians. We've been brought into the light of God and into his holy family. We know that we pass from death to life. Why? Because we love the brothers. He who doesn't love his brother lives in death. <laughs> well, that's quite a strong statement, isn't it? So as we love fellow Christians, this gives us an assurance that we're saved that our sins are forgiven, that we receive eternal life from the Lord and have a reservation in heaven when that time comes. He goes on, though, in the same place. 1 John 3, in verse 16, says this, Hereby we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So his death on the cross is a great example of giving oneself for fellow Christians. But he doesn't stop there. 
He goes on in verse 18. He says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, don't just talk about it. Practice it. Do it. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Again, that assurance. Because if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God. And so on. So we find that Peter, Paul, John, Jesus tell us to love each other. Not just once, but we find it repeatedly commanded to us. And actually, it's a great opportunity to do that. I believe as individuals, this gives us a great goal for which to live. I believe as a church, this gives us an ongoing great goal for which to exist and live and to fulfill obedience. Now, having said all that, let's go back to 1 Peter again. He picks up in chapter 4, talking about this. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. And above all things, he tells us, have fervent love among yourselves. Again, that word fervent or fervently. Have fervent love among yourselves, among fellow Christians. And he gives a benefit here. Because love shall cover the multitude of sins. Love will help us get along together. Even with people maybe that our personalities may not really agree. People with whom maybe our personalities even clash. Love covers the multitude of sins, helps us overcome such difficulties. Even if we disagree, we are to still love one another. We are worked together for the Lord to live for him and to give an ongoing witness for him. And we're to do it fervently, as it says again here, 1 Peter 4, 8. I understand when John was an old man, Apostle John, that he used to encourage the people. And we see echoes of this here in 1 John and elsewhere. He'd encourage them, little children, he'd say, love one another. Certainly was important. It would help them in time of persecution as well as ordinary times. Back in those days, there was very strong persecution against Christian people. Even got killed sometimes, and it would grow worse. And so it was so important that they stuck together and that they loved each other, to encourage each other. And this is what's supposed to happen when we come to church, meet with fellow Christians, there's to be a mutual encouragement as well as the encouragement from the pastor to the people. And June and I have been encouraged by you. 
In fact, last week, a wonderful letter came from one of you encouraging us. Encouragement is so important for each other to keep the faith, to keep living for God, to keep believing the truths which Jesus and the Word of God have revealed to us. Again, having said all that, I want to warn us about something. Lest we think that keeping the new command, lest we think that being, quote, good people, living a moral life, having a lot of good things we do to help people, saved and unsaved, lest we think that <clears throat> grants us salvation, <clears throat> forgiveness of sin and eternal life, Peter has something else to say along this line. Back to our basic scripture for the day then, chapter 1 of 1 Peter. <clears throat> I'd like to reach back, way back to verse 14. 1 Peter 1.14. Again, lest we think by our obedience we gain and earn eternal life, we find that corrected as we read this passage. <clears throat> as obedient children, beginning in verse 14, not fashioning yourselves according to the former desires or lusts in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, so you be holy in all fashion of behavior, because it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now what this actually helps us realize is that we fail. Much as we try, we cannot be that perfect, and yet God can't command us anything less. Would it be right for him to say, be 90% holy? <laughs> no, he ha virtually has to command, be holy, be sanctified, be sinless. We can't do it, so we fail. But that ever is to be our goal and the command. So since we fail, we, we need a redeemer, a savior. We need someone who takes the penalty for our sins. Be holy because I'm holy. And if, verse 17, you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, Pass the time of your living here in reverence, in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver and gold, from your futile behavior received by tradition from your fathers. He's talking about some of the Old Testament law and that kind of thing. But you were redeemed, he goes on to say, with the precious or valuable blood of Christ. You see, they gave all these animal sacrifices, these blood sacrifices in the Old Testament. We learn in Hebrews 10 that cannot really deal with the total issue. But here we learn that what totally is dealt with is what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ redeemed from our futile behavior, not by tradition, but by the valuable 
very valuable, we might add, precious blood of Christ. Now, when we later come to communion in a few minutes here, we commemorate that. We remember what he did on the cross for us, how he died for our sins, how he demonstrated how he exhibited the love of God, and how we too should love one another in a self-giving way. So what we are redeemed by is not our good deeds, but by the valuable blood of Christ, it tells us here in verse 19. As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, Jesus had no sin. He's the only one who qualified to die for our sins. He was holy. He had been virgin burn. He didn't have the fallen sin nature that all the rest of humanity is born with. He qualified to die for the sins of the world. As I said earlier, the just for the unjust, Jesus for us. He was without blemish, he was without spot. Back to 1 Peter 1.20, who assuredly was foreordained before the foundation of the world. This was no afterthought of God. But he was made apparent in these last times for you. God planned it all along, that a redeemer would come, that his son would come and die for us all that he would pay the just, righteous penalty for sin of the world. Who by him do believe in God, and here's something extremely important, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. You see, it's validated by the resurrection from the grave. Had Jesus stayed dead, not come alive again, the movement would have died out. It would have seemed to be false. He promised he would be raised from the dead. And that's the keystone of truth, the resurrection of Jesus. He came alive again in a new and glorified and eternal body. That validates Christianity. That validates his life and his teachings. That validates his person as the sinless son of God, the lamb of God who died for us. Then he comes to the verse that I started with. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth, you see, you've accepted this, you've trusted in Jesus, you've given your life to him. Seeing that's happened, through the Spirit, unto unpretended love. That's what happens. God puts that kind of love in our hearts. Of the brothers, see that you love one another with a pure heart, fervently. That makes it even more powerful, doesn't it? Being born again. He's talking about the spiritual birth. Not of perishable seed, but by imperishable by the word of God, which lives and stays forever. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory of man as the glory of grass, the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower of it falls away. We see that happen all the time, don't we? 
especially when we don't get much rain. There are a lot of dry grass around, often the hills and what have you. We saw a bunch of it on our way down to Big Sur for the anniversary celebration. And we've all seen it, of course. Grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of the Lord endures, lasts forever. Although we see everything changing around us, God's word is unchangeable. And I was thinking today, what a beautiful statement back in Deuteronomy 33, where God is said to be, quote, the eternal God, unquote. He's eternal, no beginning, no ending. We find this also in Psalms, this wonderful idea. Grass withers, the flower there falls away, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. And this is the word which by the gospel, the good news, is preached to you. So this is solid and sure. Well, what's it all boiled down to? Boils down to the grace of God reaching out to us that we truly might receive him and trust him and loving, let him live in and through us. His death on the cross was so important that he left us the communion service to ever so often commemorate that death. And you know, I was thinking there in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, it talks about us being one bread and one body. And that's one reason why we are to love each other, is it not? And so by extension, we can kind of see that pictured here. The bread represents the body of Jesus. And we are one body in him, and we are to love one another. But there's another thing about the communion. Not only at the Last Supper did he give them a new command, but he gave them also what? A new testament. Matthew 26, 26 through 28, he talks about New Testament in his blood. It's a new agreement between God and man. It fulfills and supersedes the Old Testament of Moses. And so something new is revealed at the Last Supper. In fact, two things. The new command to love one another like he loved us and the New Testament, the new agreement between God and man. By the way, that new agreement was prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31. These things are not afterthoughts of God. These things are God's plan from the very beginning. And what great love he has to us. Total forgiveness the gift of everlasting life, the gift of someday being with him in eternity, the gift of standing behind his promises in his written book. May we truly have faith. May we truly be transformed. May we truly love one another. 
May we truly, day by day, live for him.